Today, you'll be hearing part two of a two-part episode. If you missed part one, visit ce.mayo.edu slash COVID-19 podcast. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, an internal medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We've been having this COVID-19 mini-series and the focus of the discussion has till now has been specific specialties where COVID-19 has affected those particular areas. But today we are going to deal with the role of general internist in management of COVID-19. Regardless of how COVID presents, general internists are always drawn into taking care of these patients. So I'm joined today in the podcast by Dr. Ryan Hurt, who is a professor of medicine and is the practice chair managing over 100 physicians at the Division of General Internal Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. And he's at the hem of this activity. And we are joined by Dr. Ravindra Ganesh, who is also a consultant in medicine, an instructor in medicine, actively involved in management of the logistics and management of the planning behind what we are going to discuss today. And Dr. Nadir Bunya, who is a senior associate consultant in general internal medicine, who is actively involved in a whole range of activities which involves the management of COVID-19 patients. What these three individuals have done is nothing short of magic. In a very, very short time, they have been able to construct what is called the general internal medicine COVID frontline care team, also called the CFCT. Thank you for joining us, Ryan, Nadir, and Ravi. Thing about the testing is the false negative cases. Have you had? Have you had to run? I've had. Uh, I've heard stories about uh, nightmares of false negative in other hospitals. Have you had to run against some some cases of false negative? And what did you? How did you manage them? With the false negatives, we do see a fair number of false negatives. Uh, we don't have a great um, answer as to what the percentage is, but we try and treat this with an epidemiologic lens. And we've had a lot of cases where people's symptoms fit the COVID-19 disease. And if their test is negative, we'd err on the side of caution and be, and ask them to you know, stay home, isolate and retest. We've had situations where an entire family cluster is COVID positive and there's one person who's negative. Well, in that situation with something this contagious, we're gonna treat that negative person as positive. I think the important thing is recognizing the limitations of the technology that you have and being able to work around it with good common sense. So knowing the disease and knowing how contagious it is has probably been most useful to us in that regard. I do want to jump in here and make some comments. Um, second, everything that uh, Ravi just said, and you know, looking at the literature on these tests, you know, the sensitivity of the RT-PCR tests that we're doing primarily on swabs from the nasopharynx are quoted around 63% to 70%. So your false negative rate is you know, 30% or even more. And we know that although the nasopharynx has a high viral load, even in asymptomatic people, that that viral load changes as days of illness go on. So when we're retesting certain individuals to clear them from quarantine, you know, they may continue to test positive or test negative and then test positive uh, you know, with a second 
retesting that is recommended by infectious disease because we're trying to increase the sensitivity of this test. So certainly that's everything that we need to take into account, the accuracy of our tests, like Dr. Ganesh was saying. Um, and the other thing that I want to say about that is that you know, this test is relatively new and Mayo developed its own test, but as far as I'm aware, I don't believe the sensitivity is better than what's out there, but we don't have all the data for that. The important thing to consider is that even in influenza epidemics or pandemics, that the, valida the validated test for influenza can be falsely negative. So when there's widespread infection and people have similar symptoms, we have to understand that our tests may be negative and you have to use your clinical judgment there. You know, I had, a, I had an instructor when I was in training that used to tell me, you know, tests are dumb, people are smart. And it was a crude way of saying that clinical judgment supersedes everything. So even though your test may be negative, your clinical judgment is superior to that. So what I'm hearing you saying is that if it's COVID season, which is now, and COVID is ramping, and the patient has those classical symptoms, fever, scratchy throat, plus minus dyspnea, and the test is negative, do not give up. Um, treat the patient as positive, use all the precautions, and maybe test them again uh, pretty soon. We don't know how, how, when to text them, test them the next time around. Is it a couple of days down the line or something like that? But uh, pretest probability is more important than just the result. Don't give up on the negative test if the pretest probability is very high because this test is not a gold standard yet. So now, um, Dr. Hurt, uh, with your management skills, well, this is a practice element which we found. People are making phone calls, connected care, remote care, but you took a step further and you've got, you probably have some message to give to, to academics and um, division chairs from other institutions as to how to turn a crisis into a research enterprise or, or as uh, an, a center of innovation, um, involve faculty uh, and make it a scholarly aspect too, because you're already doing the work. Can you tell us what you're doing, you and your group are doing during this COVID-19 crisis? Adversity can really, uh, what we've been taught in leadership is adversity can bring out moments where you're able to learn new things, uh, explore different areas of academic, a pursuit. And for us and our team here, the COVID pandemics, as tragic as it is, is has offered an opportunity for us as general internists to showcase our skills. Uh, we are certainly looking at researching uh, COVID and this process, this uh, frontline care team uh, that Ravindra and uh, Nadir are, are leading. So we have been able to capture an IRB to look at this and, and basically put these individuals in a database where then we'll be able to study them. But it also allows us to uh, put these individuals on maps and, and do some of the tracing work, initial tracing work. We have other teams here clearly that are doing more extensive tracing, but we're able to study patterns. We're also able to interestingly record these patients' symptoms, uh, which has been enlightening as far as you know, what sort of symptoms do patients have? We're, uh, we're also able to look at demographics, age demographics, you know, what sort of patterns do we see in these COVID patients with eight different age groups and different chronic diseases, uh, risk stratify. So we're able to look at a lot of uh, aspects. We're gonna certainly look at publishing our 
a model with our ID partners and our uh, connected care partners, uh, our colleagues. And so we can hopefully disseminate what we've learned because I feel strongly what we've learned here, I think other practices in internal medicine across the country could implement. This isn't just magical Mayo Clinic stuff. Um, we, a lot of the lessons we've learned, we certainly can um, you know, have others replicate and, and, and improve. Uh, and so I think that's the advantage of studying these things and then publishing what you've learned, the experiences you've learned. I think the concept too of this uh, virtual hospital that Dr. Ganesh uh, really talked about and coined is true. You know, There's been a lot of focus of putting uh, up these temporary hospitals, but really if you think about it in a pandemic like this, putting some of these monitoring systems on patients in their home setting, quarantining them uh, and monitoring them you know, from a distance, you know, and then acting on the data when you have to, sending them to acute care when they need to, this concept of virtual hospital is something we can learn not only for this pandemic, uh, but for future events as well. That's absolutely necessary because I think so many of us, so many hospitals and clinicians, we are stuck with just saving lives and getting into the battle of uh, doing something for the patient that we, are, we don't have the time or the energy to study it. And being able to capture the data as, as, as you're doing with your team is enormous just to be able to learn uh, what's going on and also learn, I think, new techniques. And that was the reason I asked you the question about your experience with uh, uh, enteral feeding and with managing big teams and how it is helping you here. And when you're able to manage COVID, I can see Ravi and I can see Nadir being champions. I mean, I mean, there is no other experience which is more vital than being there, being deployed, being changing, how to, how to have a Zoom meeting with 20 different people, hold them accountable, how to do a remote monitoring, how to do a physical exam, what are the exact things that we can replicate on a face-to-face -face into a non-face-to-face -face evaluation. Uh, I think uh, all these data which you're capturing will really help. But what I'm hearing from you is that uh, telemedicine is here to stay. So what are you telling your under doctors you're meeting now who are worried that when they come back to work, um, are, is, are they going to have a panel of face-to-face -face and non-face-to-face? -face and how, will, how do you vision medicine, especially in the general medicine practice, is going to look post-COVID? Yeah, so I think telemedicine is here to stay. I think that's clear. I mean, we... In general internal medicine here, we had already incorporated a lot of the non-face-to-face -face sort of technologies in our patient care already. And what COVID-19 has done is accelerated that process and that those sort of technologies. And so we're gonna take the lessons learned from how we've used telehealth and incorporate them into tra traditional face-to-face -face care. Because clearly face-to-face -face care is still gonna drive uh, patient visits in the immediate future. But how do we use telehealth more effectively. I think those are the things that we're looking into. Like, for instance, if we're bringing somebody to the Mayo Clinic that is very complex, has a number of uh, medical issues, and we've just kind of guessed that they may need to see a, a certain specialist, but if we can use telehealth, call them up front, and actually have a visit with them, a short visit, brief visit, and, and triage their needs up front, we can make that visit for them here more effective. So that's one way we're looking at using this uh, post-COVID or even in the next few uh, months and short term. 
the one thing that we really need to get across to not only other internal medicine providers and other specialists is we're, we're going to push at other levels too because there were a lot of barriers to telehealth prior to COVID, including some of the state line issues, uh, practicing medicine in different states if you're connecting with patients outside your uh, state. Uh, some of these, uh, some insurance coverage concerns. I think we need to really have strong advocacy to message these things at higher levels. Uh, and, and I think that going forward is gonna be very important that we can push uh, and, and show the value of telehealth in many different areas and then hopefully get them covered and also have us protected as far as practicing across different state lines. So what I'm hearing, um, just one last question to all three of you. Uh, are you in the process of developing a curriculum with the lessons learned on telemedicine, what works, what does not work, some of the things that we spoke about so that next time it happens, by golly, we'll have everything ready on day one. For many hospitals, this is a wake-up call. They have to, just like we do physical exam, we teach residents physical exam, medical students face-to-face. -face. This is going to be more than just a simulated I think the only place where they get an experience is either in simulation or rarely when they're talking with uh, a patient through iPad or something, but this is here to stay. And I can see um, this is probably going to be a fellowship or curriculum in many places. What do you think going, is going to happen? So um, I can tell you what's happening with our residency program right now. Um, because of the COVID pandemic and the reluctance to bring patients on campus who didn't need to, our residency program uh, led by Dr. Bonas um, actually opened up a really nice telehealth program. They were still precepted by physicians who actually watched the entire telehealth interaction and instructed them on points that they could use to make the interaction more meaningful and feel more connected. This is also where we got a lot of our um, physical exam skills that me and Adir both use when we evaluate our patients. So from the residency side, we already have stuff that got built in on the fly. During this entire period of about three to four weeks now, our IT system has responded in an amazing manner. Um, our Epic has been upgraded. Zoom is integrated into Epic for virtual visits with patients. The virtual visit um, tab, tab became more accessible. And a lot of good changes happened to make it practical. And I think Nadir is teaching with the medical schools. So he can comment on the medical school part. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of teaching is all going online. It's all um, I mean, there's no face-to-face -face teaching now. So Nadir, do you have something to say before we wrap up? Yeah. So as you can imagine, and I'll go back to what's happening in the media, especially in New York. You see that fourth-year medical students are going to be graduated early. So now you have people that are just finishing the very fundamental part of their training that are gonna be thrown into this pandemic that has been chaotic for us with various levels of training. So they have a lot of anxiety and they're not allowed to do face-to-face you know, -face care at this time because we have to protect you know, our future there. So there was a request for a COVID elective that would be virtual and sort of like what we're doing now, conversations between people in the ICU, people from New York, you know, physicians in, Italy to talk about their experiences and to provide a resource for our future doctors so that they can learn about this disease, you know, before they set foot in it. Um, and it's geared towards third and fourth year medical students. So, you know, I took part in that and helped developing the curriculum 
because uh, I've been trying to stay up to date as much as possible. And I, I did do a conversation about telemedicine because they're going to be asked to do it because, as Ravi said, the residents here are already doing telemedicine. So, you know, the, the more preparation, the better. And, you know, Ahmed, you mentioned lessons learned. And one of the lessons that, that I've gained from this is, is we need a response team, a response team that's ready to go. And I have some experience with this in my training. You know, I was born and raised in South Florida. I did my residency in medical school in South Florida. And we get hurricanes very frequently there. It's something that you know, I'm personally very familiar with. And a great thing that my residency leadership did was they created a hurricane response team, a volunteer group of residents who said, when the hurricane comes and people need to seek shelter, we will answer the call. We will be ready to go. The schedule was set. Who was going to do ICU? Who was going to do wards? Well, who was going to do the night shift? All of that was agreed on before hurricane season even came around. So I think something similar for pandemics, for institutions to have a telemedicine pandemic response team. So the infrastructure has already been established. So it doesn't have to be built on the fly, ready to go. It's probably one of the biggest lessons that I've taken away from this experience so far. Medicine is so experience related. You always ask one question, do you have the experience? Do you have the experience? Meaning that you gotta wait for to be an old man or old woman to have the experience. I think with the telehealth and CCC monitoring and your videotaping, I would request that with an IRB kind of, you know, you've already have IRB requests, is you videotape your daily interactions. You videotape your, uh, how you're communicating with different team. Like Ravi can videotape him doing Zoom and Ryan can videotape him leading bigger teams uh, with the computer screen showing that visually when you show this to medical students, you bring them up speed very fast. I mean, the hurricane response team which you mentioned is good. If you're staying in South Florida and you're seeing hurricane and you're getting that experience, but a lot of us uh, have to be brought to speed very fast, even without that experience, so that we are really ready for to jump at the moment go. This is no longer something which we can just read and have just wait for up to date with come with an article or ask my expert. This has got to be captured, your experience, your feelings, your emotions even the stresses you're going through and understanding what is going on ground. And this will tremendously help us in understanding uh, future such, such events. And again, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking with the leaders in genital medicine, a team which is instrumental in setting up the COVID frontline care team. Uh, they are the heart and soul of the team. And so we are joined by Dr. Ryan Hurt, Dr. Ravi Ganesh and Dr. Nadir Bhuya. Any last thoughts? I have one thought. Um... This is one time where we've learned that social media moves faster than PubMed. Um, a lot of the information we've gotten on trends and what's changing has come through the social media. My colleagues in New York have informed us, you know, of a lot of things that haven't hit the press yet. Proning for folks with ARDS um, in this disease, possible pathophysiology, we learned about anosmia before it hit the press from social media. So we've learned a lot of these things from social media. And it's very important to realize that not only is telemedicine a thing, but the social media is kind of governing the way we take care of people when the evidence is evolving faster than can be printed. Very well said, very well said. Ryan? Yeah, I'll echo that. I think uh, certainly we're, we're learning every day. And I think that's the strengths of our profession is we're very open to 
all kinds of sources and resources as far as knowledge goes. Uh, I'll encourage people to, especially physicians in general internal medicine practices, to listen to your patients like Nadir had said earlier. Uh, but also I think use your skill set that you already have to, to treat these patients. And you're the front line yourselves. We're the front line here at Mayo Clinic taking care of the COVID patients. And I encourage you to continue to partner with nursing, partner with your staff to take excellent care of these patients now and moving forward. Just thank you for the opportunity to do this, Ahmed. I think it's a great venue to spread this information. I do want to second what Ravi is saying. I'm very active on social media, so I have seen some of the things that he's saying um, about the treatments and presentations of patients, particularly people that are, dis, uh, that are not dyspneic when hypoxic, which is a unique thing that we're seeing with this disease, and we've encountered it with our telemedicine efforts. But I think it's important to have a professional uh, social media presence as a physician because Part of, the, part of our responsibility is combating the myths that are out there. And there are a lot of myths and misinformation that's going out there on social media as well. And I think that's becoming more prevalent than what's credible. So we need to do our part and be involved with it so we can combat the, the, the falsehoods that could lead to harm, as we've seen in some cases. We've been talking about the many ways that general medicine are responding to the COVID-19 infection. Uh, thank you for your time, Ryan, Ravi, and Nadir. I learned a lot uh, today about not only the management, about the front line, as well the use of telemedicine, the use of social media, and following the trends. And as general internal medicine physicians, this has really given us a shot in the arm as a specialty to work and think about all our efforts and how we coordinated and showed leadership will be really remembered, but I, my heart goes out to the families, um, the lot of general medicine doctors who have lost the battle, uh, taking care of the patients, not only in the US, uh, but in NHS, in National Health Service, just heard 24 doctors have lost their lives. So uh, this, is, this is a very hard time for all of us. Hopefully we'll never lose sight of what's going on, we'll capture and learn from this experience, and hopefully we'll never get to have this happen again, but if it happens ever, I'm sure, sure, this, this, all the information that you have shared, and I'm sure you're going to update us um, about newer things that you learn. So uh, thank you for, for your time, Ryan, Ravi, and Nadir. We'll continue to bring you the updates on this situation as events unfold. If you've enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talk podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in claiming credit, visit ce.mayo.edu slash COVID-19 podcast.